South Coast, Tim Weisberg here, flying solo tonight, no silent assassin, Matt Costa, no science advisor, Matt Moniz, no psychic medium, Stephanie Burke, just myself, and we are here to talk about the paranormal as we do each and every Saturday night, a little bit of a late start tonight, I apologize for that, but I was at House of Bricks Wrestling, it was one of the final shows that they're doing in their the end of their 10-year run here, uh, Fright Night, and it ran a little bit late because all hell broke loose tonight. You can catch that coming up on House of Bricks Turnbuckle TV over the next couple of weeks. Uh, But there are just a few shows remaining. These are charity fundraiser shows that uh, happen all over the city of New Bedford and in Fairhaven. And so I want to make sure that we can help them out as much as we can. But then, you know, sometimes you, you just lose track of the time, especially if you get beat up. But that's okay because we still have plenty of time to welcome our guest tonight. You know him from uh, Coast to Coast AM as Lex Lonehood. Lex Lonehood Nover has been the web producer for Coast to Coast AM, America's most popular overnight radio show since 2002. His work is considered a valuable resource for anyone studying the paranormal, fringe science, and alternative theories. He's joining us tonight to talk about his new book, Nightmareland, Travels at the Borders of Sleep, Dreams, and Wakefulness. And I've, uh, I've been already... Uh, reading through the book and it's a fascinating read and, and i know we're going to have a great discussion with lex so let's bring him on here on the show good evening uh, lex are you with us still um, hey there tim how you doing oh we're spectacular and i want to thank you for your patience with uh putting up with our crazy schedule and uh, all the things that we have go on it's not we're not a fine-tuned machine like coast to coast am is <laughs> <laughs> well you do have coast in the name and i uh, certainly appreciate being invited to be on the show with you I'll tell you just real quick a story. Years ago, when, when George Norrie wrote his first book, we were going to have him on as a guest, and we had to do a pre-record. Uh, and when we when we were waiting, we were in the news booth. Uh, the three hosts that we had at the time all huddled in the news booth so that we could record the interview in there because I didn't know how to record it otherwise. And the board op that was in here running a, a Red Sox game, George called, and he, he looked into the window and said, I don't think they're ready. You're going to have to call back, and, and hung up on George. And I said, you just, oh, you just hung up on George Norrie. <laughs> <laughs> so just just know that this is the way we treat all coast to coast people here on the on okay the well i take no offense <laughs> <laughs> so uh, first of all just real quick why don't we uh, let everybody know because uh i think we have an idea of, of what somebody does in your position with coast to coast am mainly because our good friend tim banal is uh is the guy who fills in for you when you have the night off uh so we we've talked to him over the years a little bit but just give everybody an idea of what you do for coast to coast Sure. Um, I'm the web producer there. And uh, actually, Tim used to fill in for me. Now, a fellow named Greg Bishop does that. Uh, you may know him. He's, he's also uh, known in the paranormal community mm-hmm. and uh, has written some books. But uh, Tim right now is uh, a full-time writer for us covering the paranormal beat. So that's something we've been happy to do at the Coast website in the last few years is feature his stories and analysis of different uh, things that are crazy things happening out there in the world 
And as far as what, what I do, ever since uh, 2002 when I've been hired, when I was hired, I really kind of made it my mission to give sort of a journalistic twist to the show, especially in terms of the recaps, so that um, each show is really written up and some of the highlights and information that the guest mentions or is quoted is becomes part of our archives. So it actually, over the years, has really built up into quite, quite an archive, and uh, I actually used it for research for my own book. And do various other things on the site, like uh, posting in the news stories, curating photographs, uh, manning the Twitter and Facebook pages, and uh, different assorted things of that nature. And and I have to say, you know, sleep issues are something that I've dealt with my whole life uh, from a physical perspective. Uh, and it was only maybe in the last like ten or fifteen years that I really started to to learn about what I suffer from. Uh, but the sleep stories, as soon as you have any kind of sleep issue, all the legends start to come up, and it must have been pretty difficult as you were starting to put together this book to pull apart some of those legends and, and try to see because you do a great job of telling us the history of where these these myths came from uh, when people didn't understand some of the things that we go through when we're sleeping. Is it still hard today in 2019 to be able to separate those myths from the actual physical reality? Well, it, it's an interesting question, and I tried to kind of walk somewhat of a middle path in the book, looking at the scientific or neurological explanations for things like sleep paralysis, but also honoring some of the traditions and lore and supernatural explanations that uh, it's almost like a parallel track. I think. And as far as what you were saying about sleep issues, that's something that uh, was that that I uncovered in my research that really I think there were a lot of people that had different sleep issues, and especially before the Internet, they kind of kept it to themselves. It was mm-hmm. kind of like a secret or shameful thing. And then there was just this explosion of sleep clinics. I think there's about 2,500 of them over North America, and now people are are speaking out and being able to look up different things on the internet because there's a lot of really bizarre stuff. And I think people feel especially freaked out when they're doing things that are outside of their conscious control, like sleepwalking or sleep eating and, and different behaviors that they're not consciously doing. So it really can freak a person out. I mean, I just remember, you know, I'd never heard of the term sleep apnea until I was diagnosed with it. I mean, I may have heard it, but I didn't really know what it was. Now there's commercials on television. Every, you know, every commercial break, it's somebody pitching, do you have sleep apnea? We have the new cure. And and I'm sure that a big part of that is, you know, America is becoming more obese and we're taking uh, worse and worse care of ourselves. But also, it's like you said, the the taboo is gone. And one of the taboos that's really disappeared is people are openly talking about sleep paralysis experiences when I don't remember hearing about that until I started focusing on the paranormal. You know, people wouldn't talk about that as being something that happened to them unless they assigned some sort of a paranormal uh, uh, reasoning behind it. Yeah, it's funny. I think that the subject of sleep paralysis uh, has really arisen into mainstream consciousness. For me, the the watermark, I guess you could call it, was seeing it as a plot development in that uh, Netflix series, Haunting of Hill House, which I guess was hugely popular, where one of the main characters um, falls in love with her sleep paralysis counselor, 
<laughs> so I thought, okay, this has really reached a, a point of <laughs> of just really being part of the, the mass consciousness. My sleep paralysis counselor was an old Indian man with a beard, so it wasn't really <laughs> my type. Uh, but it, it's it's something you know that is uh, as I said, it's becoming more common. Uh, what what are some of the the causes? What are some of the reasons why people have these? paralysis experiences because i think everybody probably has you know some semblance of what we're talking about with it they may not be chronic sufferers but they've probably had some kind of an encounter with it yeah it's pretty common i think somewhere between 30 to 70 percent of people will have at least one experience of it in in their lifetime the neurological explanation usually stems around an idea of kind of an out of order sleep state because when you go to sleep, you do it in stages. So there's three or four stages of deep sleep, and then there's the REM, rapid eye movement sleep, that's most associated with dreams. So the idea is that suddenly your REM state has popped in when you're waking. So it's almost like a um, superimposition of one state on top of another. Um, and as far as the explanation as to why people see these malevolent beings. There's some different uh, uh, neuroscience explanations around that as well. One of them I I just ran across recently. It's uh, from a a neuroscientist named V.S. Ramachandran. It's pretty theoretical, but it's this idea that the body's perception of itself, there's a... um, part of the brain that always perceives the overall body and that becomes distorted during sleep paralysis because the limbs can't be felt and so it causes the brain to project this body image or humanoid shape outside itself through what's called the mirror neuron system so i I thought that was kind of an interesting way of uh of looking at it Uh, Um, alternatively yeah, I mean, it, it, it's not anything that's proven. Um, in terms of the more supernatural explanations, there's the idea that these different beings or entities are somehow contacting us through, through this unusual state that we're in. And it, it does, when you've actually seen one of these beings, your, your eyes are wide open, and it really is a completely uncanny thing because you're in... You're in your, your room, your exact surroundings, and then to see this thing is really, it's really kind of a remarkable fe- feeling. Um, I speculated in my book that perhaps that might have been part of what went on with the whole uh, witch persecution thing, that this idea that the demons were considered like lawfully beings that were recognized by the church and the state, and it made me wonder if some of these church canonists had actually had sleep paralysis experiences and seen these demons <laughs> with their own eyes, and that's part of how it, it became the law at that time. Yeah, because when, when you look at some of the, the experiences that people have uh, during these sleep paralysis exper- uh, uh, episodes, you can look at a lot of the different things that we're afraid of and realize that they factor in there and it it kind of could be a chicken or an egg type of thing because is it that those we're afraid of those beings because they kind of come to us in that state or 
is that what our mind is just going to when we're in that state and we're, we're seeing these shapes? Do, do, does our mind think, oh, I know about the story of the hat man, so therefore, you know, I'm going to see the hat man when I'm in that state. Or I'm afraid of aliens, so I'm going to see a gray alien at the foot of my bed. Well, and then some psychiatrists or psychologists have stated in a kind of case-closed manner that the whole alien abduction thing is simply misunderstood sleep paralysis. And that's something I, I look at in my book as well. And from my observations and research, I don't find that particularly compelling because I do get what you're saying, that if, if it is kind of a projected dream state that people definitely could influence what they experience, yet it seems like most people report these very idiosyncratic beings and experiences almost and even for the same person, they might have a number of sleep paralysis experiences, and each time it would be different. It's not the same being that's coming. Whereas something like the bedroom abductions with aliens, it feels like it follows this very rote pattern of being placed on a spaceship and these um, examinations and the hybrids. And all. It, it feels like a story that's repeated over and over again. And to my mind, that didn't really gel with what people generally report with sleep paralysis. So it's kind of quizzical. It feels like there is some relation to it in terms of the aliens paralyzing people. And it doesn't really make sense to me that there's some UFO that's parked <laughs> behind someone's garage mm -hmm. and they're just beaming in. So it, it does feel like there is some other explanation. Right. That I mean, the, the abduction phenomena goes far beyond uh, this. But one thing that does tie into it, and, and you had mentioned you know, the idea of demons, and I think a, a lot of folks have heard about the old hag and, and some of these demons that come to people in the States, such as the incubus and the succubus. Can you give us kind of a, a breakdown of that for people that might not be familiar? Sure. That was one thing that I, I, I got uh, kind of a kick out of, was seeing how all these different countries have their own sleep paralysis lore. I, I joked in my book that I was picturing like a kind of Olympics parade, but instead of the athletes, they're portraying their particular country's mythos about, uh, about sleep paralysis. And as you mentioned, the old hag that uh, started in uh, New Newfoundland and uh, in North America, that's kind of one of the better, better known. And the, even like the word haggard could stem from from that when someone would say they're ha Hagrid, but a lot of these words actually get kind of laundered over time and those meanings fall away. Um, just as a side note, um, it's interesting that the word nightmare actually referred to sleep paralysis up until the, the 19th century. So people were actually talking about that experience as a nightmare, and it, it wasn't until more modern times that we have a different meaning for that word in terms of these anxiety dreams that, that wake us up. But um, I can just go through a few of these from these uh, different countries, if you like. Yeah, that'd be great. Um, in Japan, it's called kanashibari, which means bound by metal, and it's depicted in folk tales and manga as a magical power used by monks to immobilize people and animals. And over in the Caribbean islands, it's known as Kokma, and the islanders believe that it's the spirit of a dead baby attacking them by jumping up on their chest 
or clutching their throat. Now, in the Hawaiian Islands, Hauka Lapo, or night marchers, um, these are thought to be avenging warrior spirits. And there's kind of more of an auditory spin on this experience because they hear the sound of their footsteps and drums and become increasingly fearful because it's said that when they arrive and, and look them in the eye, it will cause death. And then in, in German lore, the Alp is a demonic being or elf that attacks and paralyzes people in their sleep in what's called Albdruke, or elf pressure. And they're said to enter through the keyhole of a bedroom. And I could, I could just <laughs> go on. It's almost like every country has, has one of these stories. And, and I actually wish that uh, one of my regular co-hosts, Stephanie Burke, had been here because she actually had an experience with the Night Marchers when she was in Hawaii. She's, she's been out there a couple of times now, and, uh, and it's part of a spiritual journey that she's going on. And, uh, and she actually had an encounter where you know the, the Night Marchers were basically right outside of her room. And uh, her, her kahuna that was helping her out had to like, basically tell her, like, you know, stay in your room. When you hear those drums, stay in your room, because it was, it was that real of an experience. Um, but I also I found it fascinating that you talk about how, uh, in the book, you mentioned that some of these entities that are, are, are known for, say, sitting on the chest of the person and, and taking away their breath might actually be explained by the physical sense of coming out of uh, the, the paralysis that's associated with REM sleep. Yeah, I mean, that. I was going to mention that before. I mean, that fits in with the neurological explanation that the reason that you're paralyzed during, during sleep paralysis is that's the same paralysis that we have normally when we're in REM, and it's for kind of the practical purpose so that we don't get up and start acting out our dreams. But you, um, you mentioned that the breathing kind of changes a little bit, and so that that's why people might have trouble kind of catching their breath when they are awakened from that state. Right, right, um, and it it could be that um, that that also adds to the fear factor because all you're you're awake, but you can only really move your eyes and and breathe. Not you're not able to breathe normally. And 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 apnea sufferers, you know, they wake up gasping for air if they're if they're not being treated for it. So it's you know, I can kind of understand how they would have these experiences and kind of assign supernatural. Uh, situations uh, to them, especially when you're, you know, with apnea sufferers being shaken awake, basically, by the fact that you can't breathe. There was a a professor that had an interesting theory regarding breathing um, named Ronald Siegel. He had his own sleep paralysis experience with this kind of hideous succubus breath smelled of stale tobacco, and she was writhing on, on top of him. And he suggested that this kind of hyperventilating during sleep paralysis was reducing the brain's supply of oxygen, and it was almost creating this sexual response, not not unlike autoerotic asphyxiation. That's <laughs> that's a little bit. That's a whole different story. People that are uh, in, yeah, into that. There's a lot of uh, bizarre theories. One another one that. Uh, caught my imagination was from a lucid dreamer named Lucy Gillis, who does some uh, blogging and writing. And she proposed the idea that in dream states, we might be astrally traveling out of the body, and that in a kind of bilocation, 
a person could be waking up in their body while they're this astral body that's also them is trying to get back in the body and could be like pounding on the chest and trying to get back in the body in this weird sort of dual consciousness. Mm. I mean, that's, that's, that's a little bit more of a, an intense situation than, uh, than just, you know, kind of coming back into to consciousness. That's, that's, um, I can only imagine that there'd be some severe dangers to that happening. Yeah, I mean, you would think that there, there, there would be certainly mental confusion. I, it seems like most of the sleep paralysis is just the danger is more just this fear and freaking out. And I think for people that have experienced it more than once and, and know what it is, that's a huge relief because in the days before it was known and the first time you might have it, you could really think you're, you're just going crazy. And so I think that in, in a lot of ways, it's a lot easier now to, to understand the phenomenon. And it can even be used kind of for good purposes to launch into a lucid dream or this, this out-of-body travel kind of thing. I've, I've tried for years, and I, and I just can't master it. But, not, I mean, not everybody has to worry about the paralysis side of things when it comes to their, their sleep conditions and their sleep issues. Some people actually get up and walk around the house. Yep. Is a, sleepwalking is, is really common, and that, I think, is, is kind of a classic example of the, I guess you could call it the theme of my book, the idea that you have these, these almost like cocktails of consciousness where you've got this mixed state that involves waking, sleeping, and dreaming, and, and the associated uh, brain, brain waves or brain states with those. And with sleepwalking, uh, motor function is working, eyes are open and, and seeing things in a certain way, but the neocortex that governs rational thinking and memory, that's still asleep. So you've really got this kind of hybrid person out there uh, doing things <laughs> that they're not really conscious of in a normal way. I mean, for the most part, though, is it, do they go through like mundane activities or do they do things that are out of character? I think there is a lot of the mundane activity. I was more interested in, in some of the bizarre and, and strange things where people drive places or even commit murder. There was a story that was kind of funny because it, it had a, a good ending, but it, uh, this uh, 77-year-old man named James, James Curran awoke to find himself chest deep in a swampy pond on, on his, uh, com- in his complex, and he was actually being surrounded by several gators. Wow. And he, w- he was kind of like stuck in the mud when he, when he awoke. And he, he had t- taken his cane with him, apparently, during his sleep, sleepwalk episode. So he was able to kind of bat the gators away while he was shouting and screaming. And the neighbors uh, alerted the police, and they were able to get him out of there before the gators got him. And there was a, a case of a teenage girl in London in 2005 who was seen on top of a 130-foot crane. And at first, police thought, oh, this is a suicide attempt. And, but then they realized she was curled up sound asleep. And so they had to kind of figure out how to get her off of there without, like, disturbing her. Because if she suddenly awoke, she'd, she could fall off. 
and they eventually found relatives who rang her mobile phone that she had on her, and she was rescued without any injury. It, so it's, it's almost like people are able to conduct these, these things that they wouldn't be able to do while waking, this, this thing of climbing up a 130-foot crane, is an example. Well, I, I mean, obviously that was an extreme case, but is it true, you know, the old wives' tale that you shouldn't wake somebody up that's sleepwalking? You know, that apparently is based on the idea that your soul is traveling out of the body while, while you're asleep, and so that if you wake a person, that their soul might be lost. And I think in modern times, it's more just that you don't want to completely startle a person, because in these, these cases of violence that I looked at, I think that that was what was, was going on in terms of people just being um, almost like this haywire vigilance mechanism in, in the ancient part of their brain gets triggered. So if you do uh, wake or try to steer a person back to bed, I think the best way to do it is just very gently and you don't want to like startle them or bump into them or anything like that. But okay. the cases of violence are really pretty rare. But I, I don't want to. Uh, I don't want to gloss over this. You, you you did mention that people have committed murders while they were sleepwalking. Yeah, I have a chapter on it in, in the book. Kind of, I launch into sort of a a true crime section, and it's pretty controversial in terms of whether they actually were asleep or not. And in the court cases, some people have been found not guilty and let off scot free, even though uh. they were they definitely killed the person in question, and other people have been found guilty. And there's also cases involving um, sleep medications like Ambien that are uh, involved with vehicular manslaughter and things like that that have also become controversial court cases. Probably the, the most notorious sleepwalk murder case was one from Canada in 1987, a fellow named Kenneth Parks allegedly drove 14 miles to his in-laws' apartment and viciously stabbed them, and one of, one of them died. But then he showed up at the police department right after the crime in kind of a dazed state and said, I, I think I killed my in-laws. But it was one thing that worked in his favor was that he had cut through all 10 tendons on his fingers but was, was not feeling any pain. They, they called it a kind of dissociative analgesia that was associated with, with the sleepwalking and sleep disorders, and he had a long history of that, so um, was able to present that and different sleep experts at his trial. That's, uh, the, I mean, just the fact that people have been able to get away with it from that is, uh, is, is fascinating to me because, like you said, it, it's hard to prove. But sometimes, you know, we know that people will do weird things in their sleep and they'll do weird things when they don't get sleep too. I'm sure that there's been plenty of times when people have snapped and, and, and flown off the handle and, and probably committed murder or, or at least something pretty heinous uh, when they are deprived of sleep. I know that if I go a long time, I had to take the narcolepsy test uh, and that involved being asleep for two hours and then awake for two hours and then asleep for two hours and awake for two hours over a 12-hour, 14-hour period. And at the end of it, 
I was ready to kill somebody. I actually snapped at the poor girl at McDonald's when I went to get a coffee so I could drive home. And uh, and she was like, well, no no problem. You know, We know that you're coming from a sleep test, so we understand. <laughs> and I said, how did you know I was coming from a sleep test? And she said, well, you still have all the conductive gel on your face. I had totally forgotten to even wash it off. <laughs> but pe- sleep deprivation funny. will affect people's uh, psyche in, in, in a pretty severe way. Yeah, I, I lo- also look at sleep deprivation in the book, and it definitely um, can be it, it can be used as torture. You, you may know in terms of uh, in recent times, like in Guantanamo, they combined it with waterboarding and things like that, and then it actually goes back to medieval times when when they used it and perfected all sorts of bizarre ways to keep people awake with like contraptions that had like needles in them and things like that and uh solzhenitsyn writes about the gulag and and was explaining that there there was no worse thing than than depriving people of sleep and then when sleep was promised to them they would sign anything do anything to get some sleep it was a far more powerful motivator than food or anything else it's funny because I've heard people say that we don't need sleep, that um, that you know we're we're not really built to have to have eight hours of sleep a night. It's just something that we have kind of acquired over time uh, as we've set our circadian rhythms for that. But you see the effect that not having sleep has on people, and you think you 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 have to have some some rest. I mean, every other creature in nature sleeps. They might not sleep for eight straight hours, but they all they all sleep at some point. It, it does seem like it has. A definite uh, function evolution has has packed in, but uh, the military I think is is looking at this whole idea of super soldiers and trying to figure out a way to get their soldiers to go without sleep if possible. There was uh, a weird medical case I ran across in France. I think it's called Moravan syndrome, where uh, a, a man could go like three months without any real sleep, and he didn't have that severe physical problems. So I think the military was looking at that and seeing like, wow, can we create some kind of medication or uh, something to to try to recreate that effect? So it's, it's a bit sinister. The uh, the trend, I guess, among millennials is, at least this is something that I've heard, I don't know too many people that practice it, only a few, is to go with the stuttered sleep, where you um, you go to sleep at a you know reasonable time, like 8 or 9 p.m., and then you might wake up at 12 or 1, and then you do some more stuff, and then you go back to sleep from maybe like 3 to 7 or 3 to 8, and the idea being that, you know, that refreshing couple of hours makes us more productive, and I thought that it sounded ridiculous until I started looking into some of the history of it, and that's the way that people used to sleep. I mean, in the in the pioneer days, say, you know, they would actually, they would fall asleep around 7 or 8 at night when the sun went down, they would get up in the middle of the night, they would do some things, and then they may take another nap after they've gone out and done some other um, things, and, and, and I realize that I, I kind of, I co-host Midnight in the Desert sometimes, and, and I realize that when I co-host, uh, um, sorry, guest host, when I do that show, I do the same exact thing. I go home and I take a nap from like 9 to 11 and then I wake up and then I do the show and uh, and then I go right back to sleep afterwards. And it, it seems to be a more natural thing to me than sleeping for eight straight hours. Uh, and I don't know if it's just that I got used to it or what, but it, I feel like those are some of my best 
most productive, most uh, zoned in hours of the, the couple of hours that I'm awake in between those two sleep stints. Oh, that's really interesting to hear. I, I did run across that in my research that, that it was, I think it's called first sleep and second sleep. Mm-hmm. And it was the way that people used to sleep before the dawn of electricity. So I think uh, there was a, an experiment I, I read about in, in a book called Head Trip, where the uh, author was a science journalist and went and stayed kind of in a darkened cabin or darkened cave kind of thing for a couple of weeks. And he found that his, he naturally did start sleeping in those two different cycles. So I think that there there's a lot to be said for that. The whole idea of getting your eight hours in is kind of an unnatural thing that I think we've all just accepted as as the the healthy way to to do it, but it isn't necessarily. And in terms of trying to cultivate lucid dreaming, that is actually one of the the better techniques is to get up for an hour and do some mental activity and then when you go back to bed, your brain is a little more awake and more agile and has more potential for gaining lucidity because of that. Now, the problem is, for me, I, I may have a lot of trouble falling back asleep. So then you, you get into that risk of like, oh, no, <laughs> I'm going to be sleep deprived. And once I get up and start the day. So I think it, it works well for people that can readily fall asleep. But if you have a little bit of trouble with that, then it may not be as appealing. Are you able to achieve lucid dreaming pretty easily? No. Uh, I write about in the book that I kind of looking at these sort of cheat things like taking mm-hmm. different supplements and wearing different masks and trying out these, these kind of uh, more... Uh, just because of this era that we're in now, well, isn't there an app for that? So, um, but it, it really, they have not perfected anything yet. There's some interesting research um, out of Germany where they, uh, in a laboratory, uh, zap people with some light gamma waves, and that did create lucidity in about 77% of the test group. So that shows some promise if they can, if they can perfect that into a sleep mask kind of thing. But at this point, it's it you know it'd be foolhardy just to rig up some kind of jackass thing to <laughs> zap yourself uh, without knowing exactly what you're doing. But um, I just I I'm able to to achieve lucidity every now and then, but it, I find it's a hard state to hold on to, right? Because you have to be very like kind of neutral. If you get a little excited, you'll just wake yourself up. Have you, have you had much in the way of lucid experiences? I've, I've tried for years. I tried a, a variety of different techniques, and uh, the only one that really helped me was uh, mugwort. And I, I got the mugwort, and I tried all the recommendations. I tried putting it into a tea. I tried, you know, chewing it like tobacco. Uh, and then one of the suggestions was to actually, you know, roll it up and smoke it. And I tried that as well. Uh, don't worry, kids. It's legal. I can say that on the radio. And then uh, the thing that worked the best was I stuffed an old sock with it, and I stuck it under my pillow, like right under where my head hits on my pillowcase, and and that helped me. But the problem was the same thing. As soon as I realized that I was dreaming and that I was dreaming lucidly, and I'd say, okay, now I'm going to fly, I would start flying, and then the next thing I know, I would wake up. So I eventually just kind of abandoned the uh, the pursuit. Mm-hmm. That's interesting about mugwort. I've I've also heard that that's good just for making your dreams more interesting definitely did that supplement there's a supplement called galantamine that's um, sold over the counter uh, that 
I experimented with, and that is has become kind of popular in the lucid dreaming set. And if you take like eight milligrams, I find that it it just kind of kept me awake, and because it it is waking up certain neuro, neurotransmitters. It seemed like it was giving me a headache, and it was a little hard to sleep on it. But four milligrams. I could fall back asleep on. You generally would take it kind of midway through your sleep cycle. And while it didn't necessarily make me lucid, I found curiously that it made my dreams more intelligent. I just felt like things were more interesting. I was maybe a little smarter because I think that when we're in the dream state, there's kind of a dullness in a way to our, our reactions or our personality. And that might be because these different parts of our brain are turned off. Right. I, and I, I see that happen in a lot of my dreams where, uh, you, you know, there, I, I have a lot of mundane things that I do in my dreams. I, I, I was a, a restaurant cook for a long, long time, but I haven't been one for a number of years now. But I'll still have dreams that it's Easter Sunday and I'm at the diner and I'm buried under an avalanche of slips and I got to get all these orders out. And, and I can never seem to escape that happening to me every so often. And who wants to dream about work? You know, who wants to dream about going through these things that we don't want to have to go through? Our dreams are supposed to be a, a chance to hopefully have some fun. Yeah, I think it, it points to that there's such a wide variety of types of dreams that the person can have. And certainly I think we all have these kind of repetitious, somewhat meaningless type dreams. But then there can be things that are just so bizarre and astounding as well. I, I've noticed I have certain dreams that they don't seem like I can translate them back into waking reality. I don't know if it's, if you describe it as kind of these multidimensional aspects or some kind of astral things that, that I'm caught up in these experiences. And then when I wake up, I'm like, well, I can't, it can only, even though I remember the dream, I can't really bring down the experience back to to our understanding with the six senses. So it, it makes me wonder if we're accessing different kinds of states or awareness when when we're in that that um, the dream state. You, you had mentioned earlier that um, I, I don't remember. Did you say that it was the concept of nightmares that have changed, or kind of our etymology of the word that has changed over time? The, the the etymology of the word that nightmares used to signify what we think of now as sleep paralysis. And I, I found it interesting when you break down the actual etymology of the word. I'd always heard, you know, growing up as a kid, the old wives' tale was that uh, the reason why it was called a nightmare is because there was a black horse that came to people in their sleep. It was a mare. And it would come to you mm-hmm. in your sleep. And if you, if you saw the mare in your sleep, it meant that there, it was a bad omen of something to come. And now I can't find that. I'd heard that from people, but I can't find that uh, that explanation or definition anywhere. And it, it seems like it was just something somebody told me that was made up. Well, I think there is this kind of a equine connection. Uh, you've probably seen that that famous painting, The Nightmare, which is often used as the illustration for any article or, or a story about sleep paralysis. It's the one with the the woman reclining and this demonic imp is is on her chest. It's uh, painted, I believe, in the late 1700s or 1800s. And um, there's a horse that's peeking, spookily peeking through a curtain, (laughs) kind of in the background. 
So I think some of these words do have multiple meanings, like mare definitely has the horse thing, but I think it also can refer to an incubus. And, and nightmares and night terrors are two different things, right? That's right. Um, nightmares stem from the REM dream state, whereas night terrors take place in non-REM or the deep or slow wave sleep. One thing that, that really struck me in, in my research was this idea that we generally think that, okay, when I'm dreaming, that's REM, and when I'm sleeping, I'm just zonked out. But actually, the non-REM state, we're dreaming then, too. They're not the narrative types of dreams that we remember from, from REM, but there's content that's going on all the time. And so these people that have night terrors, they're having these storylines that often with just these really frightening scenarios, but that's why they're, they're partially waking up in these sleepwalking-type episodes because they're responding to these really scary events that they're perceiving in their mind. There was one case, a uh, um, fellow that they actually referred to as the sleep runner rather than the sleepwalker, and he had these repeated night terrors. And in one of them, he saw this like bluish figure that was like descending from his ceiling and he heard this this um um narrator in in his 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 mind saying like if you by the time this man reaches the floor if you're not out of your room then you're going to die and so he just he was in a second story bedroom and and just flew out of there and jumped down a tree and was running around the neighborhood covered in blood. And people, in while having night terrors, are also known for having superhuman strength. They might be able to, like, move dressers and furniture around that they couldn't do while they're awake. And it's it's more common in uh, children. Seems to have like a genetic component, and sometimes people have that that uh, kind of spooky, glassy eyed stare when they're when they're in that state. I, I mean, I've. I've gone through it i i don't think i've ever had night terrors myself that i can remember but i've definitely had nightmares and the the problem is is that when i have a nightmare and i dwell on it if i think about it and you know sometimes you try to think about what happened and you try to break it down and try to figure out why you might have dreamed what you did um but i find the more that i think about it the more likely that nightmare is to recur to me later on or at least a lot of the same thematic elements from that nightmare As far as people that have recurring nightmares, that is generally associated with some kind of trauma or um, unpleasant experience that they haven't completely digested or assimilated. And there's a technique called image rehearsal therapy, almost the opposite of what you were saying. So instead of dwelling on the nightmare, you, you imagine the nightmare, but then you rewrite the ending or kind of take out the part that the scary part where you wake wake up and then you rehearse that in your mind for um, five minutes a day. And that actually has been shown to to be somewhat effective for people that have these recurring nightmares. Hmm. Well, I know we only have a, a few moments left with you, Lex, but uh, one thing I will ask you about is, uh, you know, we talk a lot about when uh, we're coming in and out of sleep, that hypnagogic state. 
And that seems to be where there is a lot of, um, you know, the gray area where people, where the mystical and the, and, and the scientific kind of tend to, to blend together is, is in that state. Yeah, it was a surprise to me. I, I thought it was just going to be kind of a minor footnote in my book. And as I dived into the research on it, it really was this very rich area. There's There's been a fair amount of research and there's some new stuff going going in on it. And it I think it's a much more accessible type of experience than something like lucid dreaming. And generally, it's, it's these states of just before you fall asleep and, and just after you wake up. And it does seem like there's a correlation between these different psi abilities as, as well as creativity. People like uh, Salvador Dali and Thomas Edison actually created their own little contraptions to, to, to briefly fall into the hypnagogic state to get ideas and inspiration and then they would wake themselves up before they would actually fall asleep so they could retrieve these images. In the case of Dolly, there's these very surreal paintings and just super bizarre things that he came up with. Um, supposedly a lot of that came from, from the hypnagogic state. I mean, that's, that's fascinating to me because I know that, you know, as a paranormal researcher, I know that part of the reason why we like to investigate at night is because our bodies start to move closer into that state as the day wears on, as we get closer to when we're expecting to go to sleep. And so that actually kind of, you know, for lack of a better term, it thins the veil a little bit uh, for us. So, And I know that there's a lot of people who say, you know, if they're creative people, I can't get anything done during the day. I, I stay up all night and that's when I do my best work. And so I think that maybe some of that is, is, is a very minor level of that same thing that you're talking about with, with, with Dolly, where it was, you know, that was the state where they were the most creative because that's when they could kind of toe that line a little bit. And, and the psychic stuff seems to happen uh, when someone is just waking up. There's, I, I write about my own experience with that in, in my book, but there's also those um, crisis apparitions that people often describe where they may see a loved one that has a message for them, and then they find out that, that they had supposedly died just at that moment or around that time. So it, the evidence seems to suggest that, um, that this state, in maybe its attendant brainwaves, people can be more tuned in to this, this psychic kind of vibration. Well, the name of the book is Nightmare Land Travels at the Borders of Sleep, Dreams, and Wakefulness by Lex Lonehood Nover. And uh, Lex, we thank you for joining us and, and sharing a little bit about the book with us. Hopefully this uh, will entice everybody to get the book and read it, and hopefully it won't cause them to have any of their own nightmares, because you do a great job of explaining everything, and, and I don't know how people could, could uh, have trouble sleeping. But of course, if they do... Well, they can just turn into tune into Coast to Coast AM, right? And then it'll <laughs> yeah, it's, it's a win-win. <laughs> <laughs> that's the whole idea. See, that's the secret plan. Is you're just trying to write a book that'll keep people awake all night long, so listen to the show. Genius. Yes, uh, coming from an inveterate night owl, I'm trying to turn everyone into one. <laughs> well, thank you so much to join us. Uh, it was great talking with you, and I can't wait to finish the book. And, and hopefully, we can have you come back uh, a little bit later on, and, and we'll we'll dive even deeper into it. That would be great. It was a pleasure chatting with you, Tim. Thanks so much for having me on. Likewise. Take care. Have a great night, and, uh, and try to get some sleep. 
<laughs> Will do. All right, that is Lex Lonehood Nova. You know him as the uh, the webmaster for Coast to Coast AM, but now he's an author with his book Nightmare Land: Travels at the Borders of Sleep, Dreams, and Wakefulness. And I want—I'm serious about this. I've already started reading it about a quarter of the way through, and uh, I want everybody out there to pick up a copy of this because we are going to be talking about this again. Uh, it's been way too long since we started covering this topic. Uh, since we—I'm sorry—returned uh, to cover this topic on Coast. Uh, coast to coast on spooky south coast we did it a long time ago uh we we've done a few episodes about dreams about nightmares about the sleep state we got away from it for a long time and and i think it's important to really bring back some of that into what it is that we talk about because it does factor in to a lot of the different things that happen and a lot of the different paranormal subjects that we cover it's probably what got me interested into all of this stuff to begin with. It's probably what got me interested, uh, for example, as being a horror fan. Is uh, I, I can remember as a kid, I always liked horror movies. But what really got me into horror movies was being a terrible insomniac as a kid and waking up. Uh, my, my dad used to work uh, very early in the morning. And when he first started working those hours, uh, he didn't want to disturb my mother when he woke up. So he would sleep on the couch so that uh, if he had to get up at 3 a.m., it wouldn't be a big deal. And he wouldn't wake her up and wake up everybody else upstairs. He would sleep on the couch down in the living room and he would fall asleep with the television on. And I wouldn't be able to sleep and I would wake up and I would go downstairs. And I don't even know if he even knew that I ever uh, went down there. But I would go down and I would lay in front of the television and I would watch old universal horror movies that would come on. That was what I always would, would hope for, was that there'd be some sort of horror movie on television. And it was that inability to sleep that led me to find that. And now most people would be afraid, oh, now when I do fall asleep, I'm going to have nightmares as a result of it. Uh, but for me, it was even, you know, it made me less likely to, to have nightmares about those kind of things. The only real nightmares I had as a kid, uh, I mean, I had a lot. But the only thing that was, you know, a horror movie type element to it was uh, I would have a dream where I was in a room, kind of in an apartment on a high up floor in, a, in like a skyscraper type building. And if I got near a window, there was like a Godzilla type creature outside and he would be looking at me. And as long as I could stay away from the window or, or be at the window before he got to the window, I would be okay. And then, you know, just a lot of my nightmares as a kid had, had a lot to do with being chased. Now that I go out and I do paranormal research and I go out to haunted places, you know, it's hard for me to have a dream about a haunted house because there's not a lot in there that scare, scare me. But I have had a few dreams. Uh, it seems like every dream that I have that I remember usually has something to do with me, you know, still living with my, my siblings and my parents and moving into a, a different house and, you know, I'm going to go find this room and then this happens and then this. And there's usually like this one room in the dream that nobody should go into because there's bad things that go on in there. So these kind of things keep happening uh, in my dreams. Very strange. I wish that Rosemary Ellen Guiley was still with us because I used to love to have her come on and interpret dreams for me. She was great at it. Uh, she would also, uh, you know, anytime I had anybody that said, hey, Tim, I've had this dream and I don't know what it's all about, I would just, I would reach out to Rosemary and she would 
within an hour or two, write me back a detailed explanation of what she thought it was all about. Um, so, you know, it was, it was, uh, it was great to be able to have that kind of a resource and, uh, and we do miss her. If anybody wants to call in and maybe share some of their own sleep stories, their own sleep issues, their own nightmares that they want to discuss, 508-996-0500-877-996-1420. If you need to call toll free and we will keep the show going uh, for a little while longer because we started a little bit late. As I had mentioned, uh, I was at House of Brooks Wrestling earlier, so I you know, kind of got caught up in everything that was going on there and couldn't really leave. Uh, there was nobody else. Normally when it's a Saturday night and I have a show, if we start to get close to showtime, there's somebody else I can pass the microphone off to and say, hey, you just need to announce the last match or two. Uh, but in this particular case... There was nobody else that could do it tonight, so I had to kind of stick around. But uh, it's kind of the culmination of a long couple of days here because last night we had our Spooky South Coast event at the Fearing Tavern in Wareham, which was uh, a very interesting night. We had some uh, some kind of crazy stuff going on in the, the basement of the Fearing Tavern and you know some, some little weird EMF fluctuations in the attic and... Uh, you know, it, it wasn't an overly active night, but there was just enough stuff there that, of course, we'll keep going back. And then next Saturday night, by the way, is the Spooky in Salem event at the Reverend uh, the Parson Barnard House in North Andover. Uh, that's happening next Saturday from 6.30 to 1.30 in the morning, and you can get tickets at SpookySouthCoast.com if you want to join us. But the other thing that I did today before wrestling was I had the chance to talk to uh, the Saturday Club. Uh, which meets at the Wamsutta Club here in New Bedford. And now the Wamsutta Club is a, a place that's well-known for its hauntings as well, even though you know some of the folks that are members there don't want to talk about it. But there are stories of there being hauntings at the Wamsutta Club. Uh, I was invited to come and speak to the Saturday Club, which I was told is actually 127 years old. There's a nice, uh, a nice group of wonderful ladies that meet, and they've been doing so, not the same ladies, but various ladies through New Bedford history for 127 years. And so they're actually looking for new members. So if anybody out there would like to join up and, and take part in that, just reach out to me, Tim at SpookySouthCoast.com, and I'll connect you with them. But uh, they had me come and talk about Ghosts of the South Coast. And I have to say, not only were they a great crowd, I mean, they were awesome. When all my jokes land, you know that it's the crowd and not me. Uh, <laughs> but also we had a fantastic luncheon. As well, the steak tips at the Wamsutta Club are superb. So uh, it'd be worth getting a membership just to be able to go there and have the black diamond steak tips. Uh, but so I did that um, in the middle. So event last night, woke up, went and did a talk, wrestling, came and did the show. Next Saturday, I'll be back out. Uh, I did a, a library lecture on Thursday. Uh, next week, I don't have any libraries booked, I don't think, but then... Uh, there's a whole bunch coming, uh, Hyannis, East Falmouth. Uh, I'll be in Plymouth, then uh, in Bristol, I'm sorry, Cranston, Rhode Island, uh, for a couple of different um, library lectures. So it's all up at the Spooky South Coast page on Facebook if you want to follow along. Again, 508-996-0500. Good evening. You are on Spooky South Coast. Good evening, Tim. Hey, what's going on? Well, I wanted to update you a little more, but I also found your show interesting, even though I caught it after the baseball game. Uh, I'll start with that. Uh, you were talking about dreams? Yes. And uh, I dreamt many times of 
being on the job. And my father did too, and we could never figure out why. Uh, I used to stock shelves at Stop and Shop nights. And after I left, um, and most of my uh, working days were in supermarkets, I would always dream of either from when I started as a bag boy to when I was stocking shelves at night. I had different, different nightmares, well, different dreams, if you will. And I could never figure that out. And uh, my dad, the same way. He used to, he used to deliver bread for Tip Top Bread. Mm-hmm. And he would dream about waking up and something happening where he couldn't get to work on time, even though he was always early because Fredman, like he started his day like at 2 a.m. And uh, he would talk about, he'd tell about how he couldn't get to work for some reason or other. And he would, and it would be on his day off. And he'd wake up and he'd go, like, oh, I don't have to work today. <laughs> that, that, I mean, that used to happen to me quite a bit where I would wake up dreaming that I was late to work. I, I, I would be dreaming that I was late to work and I would wake up and I'd be freaking out. And then I would realize that, oh, no, no, no. <laughs> I'm awake an hour earlier than I need to be. Uh, but it's just, it gives you that sense of panic. I remember one time uh, I woke up and it was maybe four or five in the morning. And I was supposed to be at work at seven. And I woke up and for some reason thought that I was late. And I went to call my job, but I accidentally called my girlfriend's house instead. And I woke, oh, up her, nice. <laughs> I woke up her mother, and uh, she picks up the phone, hello? And I said, uh, it's Tim, I'm sorry I'm late. I know I was supposed to be there at 7, but uh, I'm going to be there. Uh, it's just going to take me a little while to get there. And, and she's like, Tim, this is Jennifer's mother, and it's, it's 4 in the morning. Like, what are you talking about? <laughs> yeah, that must have went over real big. <laughs> <laughs> Whoops, Sorry. Yeah, yeah. In fact, my, myself, when I worked on uh, on night crew, we used to take our break at precisely like about one thirty. And on my night off, if I went to bed, I would wake up and it would be like a one thirty. Yeah, so it's, I, that has a lot to deal you, with your sleep patterns. Yeah, you kind of get yourself kind of uh, conditioned for it. Uh, yeah. I mean, that's that was my my issue when I was uh, doing when I was working in the newsroom here. Uh, when Taylor left, I was working in the newsroom every morning for a month in, in June. And then when I finally didn't have to wake up anymore at 5 in the morning or 4.30 in the morning to come in here, I was still waking up anyway. Oh, and, yeah, it, and it took yeah. me probably another month to shake it. So, well, now, now to the better part. Yeah, um, I'm, I'm hoping for an update here. Well, what happened was I was supposed to initially get that money yesterday morning. Uh, but the uh, my lawyer came from Boston. And, of course, we had the weather and the whole bit. Uh, now, I was informed that uh, he suffered a heart attack on the way down. Oh, no. So, yeah, so I was expecting it today, and it never got here today either. So I'm figuring, even though the banks are closed, he might deliver on Monday. But we'll see what happens. Like they say, i got to wait now, so I don't know what the, what the initial scoop is. I'm gonna, I can get in touch with... Uh, my his his partner. I guess I can probably get in touch with his partner tomorrow to find out what the story is. But what, but initially, what, when I was called, uh, they had left a message that he was in an accident, and I got very suspicious because it was approximately two years ago when there was a lawyer that was supposed to deliver to me, and he got in an accident, and then and and he was part of the scam. 
So when I called and, and I heard that it was an accident, I, to, I told the person, I said, you know, it's very suspicious, but they didn't, because they didn't tell me he had a heart attack in the beginning. Right. So then I got a message that he had suffered a heart attack. So I called back, and of course, I always get their voicemails. I never get their, them unless it's like, uh, like if, if they're not in court or if, if uh, something else happens, their phones are usually off, I guess. So then I got a call back. You'd think a lawyer would have an answering service. Um, well, see, he, I think he travels with uh, one of these uh, type of phones where, like, you can dial all kinds of numbers out. You can trace all kinds. I don't know exactly what type of phone it is or anything. Because this particular lawyer, I didn't realize, got the, I, when I got to talking with him, he's got 26 offices all in different states. Hmm. And, the, and the state that he was operating from when I first called him was Washington. And he told me that the proceeding now, I, I don't know if I got to tell you the whole story. We, we ended up suing a senator from California. You sued a senator from California over this? Yeah, yeah, because um, a senator held up. I don't know how the politicians get involved in this, but some senator got involved with. Uh, see, initially, um, what I'm getting is the, uh, the reimbursement for the 10000 I sent out. Right. And it was supposed to be. Um, $395,000. And it was supposed to come out like the day before Labor Day weekend, uh, Friday before Labor Day weekend. And some senator blocked it. And it was a senator from California. So he told me that the proceedings were going to be in D.C. And he said, but you don't have to come down here. He said, all I got to do is I've got to state our case, how you've been held up for three years, and, this and, that. And, and I had no idea what he was suing for either. So um, when he called me with the results, he said that he had to fly to California to get the check. And I said, California? He said, yeah, this, uh, this senator was from California. He said, I, I got to fly to San Jose to get the check. So I said, okay. And um, <laughs> when he ever told me what the amount was, I almost died. <laughs> It, it, it definitely seems strange. Well, I, yeah, it, so so basically, though, the, the lawyer that you have now, the the one who suffered the heart attack, he's in possession of of the check. Uh, that's it's the same lawyer. This particular, uh, the one I told you about a couple of years ago, mm-hmm. uh, he may have been arrested because he was part of the scam. This is the the lawyer I started with. Um, that the when I called the Justice Department and told him what was going on, the Justice Department assigned me this lawyer. And so, and, and and as far as you know, he has possession of of the check. Yeah, and he's but he's in the hospital. So, because apparently, see, apparently he did call me, said that there was an accident because they were driving. I don't know how much torrential rain that he drove in, but there was a. I, I think he might have been near that accident because there was an accident that closed up part of Route Two somewhere out of Boston, and he might have been in that area. Because he, he did call me, said that there was an accident, the state police were there, this and that, but nothing was ever said about a heart attack either. Well, I mean, that so, might be that they don't want to share his personal medical information with you yeah, and, yeah, that, until it's okay with too. him, you know. But, uh, so I'm just thinking, like, somewhere in a hospital, uh, hanging in the closet is this lawyer's pants. Oh, no, 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 and no, And the check no, is in the back pocket. I'm all, this, I'm all this, I'm figuring all this stuff is probably in a briefcase locked up in a safe somewhere, e- either in a bank or something, because he is in New Bedford. 
I don't know if he's in, in uh, uh, St. Luke's or in a cardiac facility around the area or what. I think but they have a really good cardiac center at uh, at Toby and Wareham. Well, that, you know, see, that could be where he is. Because he told me that he was going to be in New Bedford by 8 o'clock, I believe it was Friday night. Because of the heavy... In fact, I thought he was going to be here Friday morning. But he said that with the torrential rain, his driver of X number of years didn't want to take the chance of driving in the rain. So I said, well, you know, I, there's a lot of stuff I want to do this weekend. I, you know, I hope you can get here. And he, he was... He was hoping to get here before 6 o'clock so I could make the deposit in the bank. Yeah, I mean, you've, you've got billions of dollars coming here or, or quite a you know, large sum of money. You can't just, you know, walk into the bank and say, hey, can you cash this? You know, like it's good. Oh, gonna... well, well, the check I wouldn't be cashed. He's, he was bringing, <laughs> okay, I'll, I'll tell you the, the amount. I right, but that's, what I, that's what I mean. Like when you go yeah. in there, there's going to be a, there's going to be a, a situation. When you get there, oh, yeah, the, oh, the, yeah, because the bank he's is going gonna... to. He's coming down with U.S. Marshals, uh, FBI people, Justice Department people. It's like it's almost going to be like an entourage. So, so what is the final number that should be uh, on this? Oh, I, I'll tell you, I couldn't believe it. Uh, one hundred fourteen million one hundred eighty thousand. That's uh, that's pretty good money there. That'll, that'll definitely that, change your life. One hundred eighty thousand cash. Hmm. <laughs> well. So, uh, I'm like, oh yeah, and like I felt really bad because I had. I had about six people lined up to go to see that uh, your ghost hunt, mm-hmm. and I had and I had to cancel because he, he and like I said at the time I didn't know he had a heart attack either. I was like, oh, and I was kind of ticked off. I was like, hey, I, you know, I really wanted to go to this, and I, and and I also wanted to ask you too. When you do those ghost hunts, do you have like a uh, a special age where you don't allow? Because one of the one of the people I was bringing, my neighbor, uh, their youngest. Uh, is his has the same birthday as mine, and I promised him a special birthday present, and this was it. And he's about uh, he's about nine, and he's into paranormal and ghosts. So the the way that we judge it is we we tell people, um, I mean, unless the place that we're going to has a rule about it, some sometimes the actual locations will say they don't want any children. But generally, what we do is we tell people if you feel like your child can handle what's going on. If they can handle it, if activity starts to happen, and if they can be respectful of the fact that other people are trying to have an investigation, then we will welcome any kid of any age. I mean, you know, within reason. I yeah, think nine this, would be uh, fine. Yeah, this uh, this child w- would also be accompanied by uh, his grandmother because uh, it's, this is my, my neighbor's son, and it's her, her mother is into paranormal. So she was telling me, oh, yeah, my mother and, and my son, they, they'd like to go. I said, oh, yeah, okay, yeah. I mean, we've had kids come to some of these events that are more into it and better investigators than some of the adults. So oh, I wouldn't, I wouldn't be surprised. <laughs> I, I don't really. Put, but again, the thing is, is you know, if it, they definitely have to be accompanied by an adult, and they have to just be willing to take it seriously and be respectful. And as long as that happens, uh, you know, that's fine. But just keep in mind, if you bring a kid, we're probably going to load them up with soda and, and chips and cookies too. So you're the one that has to deal with them on the way home, and whether or not they're going to fall asleep. <laughs> Oh, this, well, I'll tell you this. This uh, this neighbor of mine has three kids, and the and the youngest I say is is like just he just turned nine, same as my birthday. And these kids are unbelievable. Um, you know, remember a couple of years ago we had a um, a heavy snow with a rain after it. Oh yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, the daughter at the time I think was like about because she's fifteen now, was about thirteen. The daughter and her best friend 
came out and they started digging out my parents front because I'm still my parents. So I kind of I saw them noticing out there and, I, and the snow because I went out myself and it was like tons to pick up. So I yelled out. I said, you know, hey, don't bother breaking your back doing that. I said I was going to get out there with a snowblower, but the way it's raining and everything, I said I don't know what I'm going to do. I said why don't you just let it melt? You know, thanks a lot. And uh, this this youngest one day this youngest uh, one day during the summer. He was out and he was kind of bored, and I was I was raking some leaves, and he said, "Oh, can I help you?" I said, "Are you sure you want to work?" I said, "You know, oh yeah, yeah, young, you want to go out and have fun." He says, "No," he says, "I like helping people." So he he raked up leaves with me for like I don't know a couple of hours, and then after that he got kind of bored. He hopped on his bike, he started up and down the street, and it happened to be uh, like a garbage day. He went to every neighbor from one end of my street to the other where the intersections come mm-hmm. and he brought everybody's recycling bins into their yard after the garbage man went there's there's still a lot of good kids out there well oh, I'll, I'll, I'll tell you this much if you get the check before yeah. next saturday night we have another event happening in north andover yeah i hear something about springfield which i was uh, uh yeah what's it uh, uh, salem. Uh, salem right, right salem, outside yeah. of salem yeah it's, i it's, hear it. that sounds very interesting and uh, i will have to uh Definitely invest in some tickets. Yeah, and 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 I would highly recommend uh, that you uh, you know, and this is to anybody that's coming out to that event next Saturday night. If you want to come out, you know, leave early, spend the day in Salem, enjoy well, yeah, all that there yeah, is. That sounds good. Yeah, yeah. And then we're just you know, it's ten minutes down the road from from downtown Salem. You'll be in North Andover, and and we can have the ghost hunt, and it's a fantastic night. So uh, I oh, recommend. Oh yeah. It. In fact, I think probably for that day, I think I'll hire a limo because there's. I was going to say, which is what I was going to do anyway. Just have somebody drive you there. It's a lot easier, and then you can fall oh, asleep in the car yeah. on the way home. Yeah, and uh, I wanted to ask you too because you do a lot of different things. Um, one of the guests I had had asked, um, she has a problem with um, what does she call them? Uh, 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 something people where like she sees shadow people or something. Yes, where she sees people, but they're not there. Right, it's like the it's like the f- outline of a person. Yeah, do you know anything about that? Or do you have oh. any people that know about stuff like N- that? Not only do I know about it, I, I see them constantly when we go out on investigations. In fact, really, uh, we saw some last night in the basement of the Fearing Tavern. Uh, wow. there, we will see some, I'm sure, in North Andover because we've had the encounters with them before in the attic of the oh. Parson Barnard House. I mean, really, it's it's probably the most common type of of activity that we see a lot now because uh like the oliver house basement there's shadow people and and i think what it is is that people are are paying more attention to it now because shadow people have become so prevalent in what it is that we talk about that now people are looking for them when before they would have probably seen a shadow and just assumed it was the shadow of somebody in the room already and now that we know that shadow creatures and shadow people are a thing then people are kind of paying a little bit more attention and not dismissing those shadows so quickly Oh, that's great because this—it's uh, a young lady that's a tenant of uh, a very good friend of mine, and uh, I kept having to tell her about this, and she said, "Oh, do, do they do anything about shadow people?" I said, "Yeah, I said I hear him talk about it, but I don't know if he's yeah, got we do. an expert on it or what." Well, so, t- yeah, I've t- tell her to call I'll, in uh, sometime. We'll we'll uh, we'll point her in the right direction. Okay. Well, like I say, uh, hopefully that uh, Salem adventure—you know—she may even talk to you then. Yeah, that sounds great. Ke- okay, keep us up Tim. to date. Hey, have a great one. You and, as well. Uh, like I said, I, I'll get to you on the... Uh, now, what are the, what are the tickets go for for that uh, sale? Uh, 75 each, and you get dinner well, included with that. Well, for me, that's going to be a drop in the bucket. Absolutely. So don't worry about it. 
And, okay, Tim. We'll be talking, my friend. Have right, a good one. Take it easy. And, yeah, and, and right. In fact, I feel like we have to get a little bit higher-end pizza if uh, if he gets the check in time for that. 508-996-0500 if you would like to call in and share some of your thoughts, uh, some of your own experiences, especially when it comes to dreams, the dream realm, uh, nightmares, uh, sleep paralysis, anything along those lines, because uh, it, it is something that people encounter and they don't really necessarily realize that they encounter it. Uh, when you're reading Lex, Lex Lone Hood Nover's book, Nightmare Land, and he starts describing the uh, sleep paralysis episodes that people have, you're probably going to read that and say, gee, that, that sounds like something has happened to me. Not every example of it is so overt that you wake up seeing something at the foot of the bed. Uh, we had somebody in the chat room uh, mentioning the book, Our Demons, Our Forefathers which is about a family that grew up in Westport uh, and lived in a house that was extremely haunted. And part of that story was they would wake up and they would see a Native American figure standing at the foot of the bed. Now, this is a little bit of a different story because it was an extreme haunting that was going on in that house. But people who have sleep paralysis will wake up with that same idea, that same, you wake up and you see something at the foot of the bed and you can't move. You can't bring yourself to, to, uh, to actually even scream because you're paralyzed. And, and some people feel that they're paralyzed with fear. But it's normally not fear in that situation that it's keeping you from being able to move or being able to scream or what have you. It's the fact that you're coming out of this state of sleep paralysis, which we all go into every night when we're going into REM sleep. As Lex said, you know, if we didn't go into this sleep paralysis state, we would hurt ourselves acting out our dreams. And and God forbid, if you sleep with somebody else in the bed with you, you know, you could act out your dreams and then end up punching them in the head or kicking them or something. Uh, so the, the the problem is, you when you're coming out of that state, and your mind wakes up before your body catches up, and when that happens, your mind is kind of scrambling to make sense of what's going on. And that's when things start to get really weird. And in the same sense, you know, we have sometimes things that will bleed into our dreams because our mind wakes up before our physical body does. So I know that like if I used to sleep with an alarm clock and my alarm clock would go into there was there was one time I remember specifically where uh, there was an oldie station from in Boston years ago. And that used to be my alarm clock station. And so when my alarm would go off, I would wake up to hearing that station. And I remember having a dream about being at a concert and seeing, you know, like Tommy James and the Shondells because I was hearing that song come over the alarm clock radio, but it had worked its way into my dream. And so I'm sure a lot of you have had situations like that. I actually go to sleep sometimes now. Uh, If it's too quiet, I usually have a fan running. Um, but if it's too quiet and I need a little bit of extra noise, I use the old time radio app on my phone and I just fall asleep listening to old time radio shows. And I will find that I do have dreams where some of the stuff that, cause it plays all night long till I wake up. And some of those, some of those stuff that's happening in those episodes will kind of work its way into my dreams. 508-996-0500. Good evening. You're next on spooky South coast. Hey, good evening. It's John OB. How's it going? Hey John, what's happening? Um, not much, just listening to the show, and, um, I, um, well, all things dreams, so, uh, on lucid dreaming, um, a long time ago, when I was actually in Boy Scouts, um, a kid I, I was in Scouts with, um, 
we you know we talk about dreaming and lucid dreaming, and he would like pre-program himself um, as he was falling asleep, just like set the stage, think about what he wanted to dream about, mm-hmm. and eventually, just through practice, that um, and and in me doing that, that led to being able to realize that you're dreaming, recognize it, and take control. And so that's, I mean, to, I don't know, talk about, you know, taking things and smoking stuff, and that's like, I had no idea that was even a thing. <laughs> right, I mean, and it's supposed to really just be an aid to kind of, I don't, yeah. I don't know if it necessarily, like, causes any kind of chemical reaction that induces a lucid dream. I think it just puts the power of suggestion into your mind that you yeah. are doing something to help facilitate lucid dreaming, so therefore there the dreams go. that you have will be lucid. Yeah, that makes sense. Okay. One of the things um, that I heard about, which is, is ridiculous, and I don't know how it works, but apparently we can't see numbers in our dreams. Like we 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 look at them in a, in a dream and we know that it's a number, but we, you know, we're not physically seeing the number. It's just more the impression of it. So I was told that if you fall asleep looking at a digital alarm clock, and you stare at the clock until you fall asleep, as soon as you realize that the numbers are blurring and you can't make out the individual digits, that means that you're asleep and that you're dreaming and that you can just have a lucid dream from there. And I've tried that well, numerous times, and that doesn't work at all for me. Wow. Well, a, a lot of times, you know, everybody has anxiety dreams, and I have those that you're, uh, you know, I'm, I'm, at, I'm at school, and mm-hmm. I, you know, I'm trying to look at my schedule and figure out where I'm supposed to be, or, you know, I've got an exam I didn't study for, so I'll, I'll try to keep it in mind to look for numbers next time. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I mean, who knows? The minute you look down and you say, oh, wait a minute, I don't see numbers here, that might be the thing that clicks in your head and makes you realize that it's a dream. Yeah. No, I I only had one sleep paralysis um, experience that I that I remember at least, and it was. I mean, it, it was it it shook me to the point where I actually wrote it down. I have a journal entry in front of me from June 2017, and I was sitting in my living room. Um, I've got three kids. Uh, the boys were they just turned three. My daughter was four. And we're all napping on the couch. I got this big sectional. And uh, one of them was actually sleeping like his head on my leg. And it was like 6 o'clock. It was still light out. But you got kids, you know, you sleep whenever you can. So the air conditioners come in. I just, you know, close my eyes and I'm out. And something woke me up. I remember waking up. And it was, um, yeah, enough where I, I, I woke up, but I am decided to go right back to sleep so I just closed my eyes again and I just immediately I guess went right into a dream after I closed my eyes and it was like um, I was in the living room with the kids but it was nighttime now and um, I I'd heard someone jiggling the back door um, the downstairs of the house it was all open floor plan and it was uh, the couch in the living room. Behind the couch was a uh, an office, and the kitchen was off to the side, and the back door was between the office and the kitchen. And I could hear something jiggling the the, the, the back door. So I, I stumble up, I go to the back door, I open it, and there's nothing there. Um, but as I look through the back door, as if my basement light were on, and um, I could see um, like a shadow in the light 
that was reflected from my neighbor's house, if that makes sense. Like no, it doesn't. Yeah. My basement was on, and I could see movement. So I go back in the house, and um, uh, let's see, I got my turn here. <laughs> um, it's I, I go back in the house, and and I I, I turn, and that's when I w- wake up on the couch again, and. Um, so in my head, there's someone in my house and now I can't move and I can barely open, I could barely open my eyes enough to where I could just, you know, see some light and to, and to move, it felt like it was really hard to explain, like, like a weighted blanket on me or something mm-hmm. like my, um, I'd go to move my arm and it's like, I could feel like my bone trying to move inside my arm but the arm wouldn't move it was the weirdest thing and um then adrenaline kicked in and it was um it was just like almost like a panic attack because you know, someone's in the house i got the kids here i can't move what's going on <laughs> right i mean that's got to be the scariest part is knowing that you know you can't move to protect the children yeah and uh so then, it, 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 a short while later, I was, I was again, I was, uh, then I was fully awake and I could move, and the only sound in the house was the air conditioner. Um, <laughs> and so I, I slowly got up and I, I did check the windows and the doors, and when I went, when I got to the back door, it was a, a storm door that had a bolt, and the back door was a steel door, and the storm door, which is always locked, was not locked. And it was open, so I don't know if the original thing that woke me up was hearing, you know, the wind maybe bang that or something. I don't know, but uh, like it, it, it shook me enough where I immediately wrote down everything that happened. And that, to me, is still the 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 scariest feeling is waking up and feeling like somebody's in the house, and to yep. to not be able to do anything about it is it's you know it must have been terrifying even even for just the brief moment that it lasts it's, it, it's got to be you know some of the scariest moments of your entire life oh yeah yep it, it, it's up there <laughs> well uh, th- thank you for sharing it with us uh and and it was a smart idea to write it down i i know that people say all the time you know you should keep a dream journal because you know there's there's probably messages in there that you need to know but i've i've never been able to do that because it's almost like as soon as i start putting the pen to paper it disappears and, yeah. and and I can't really remember, and then I start to get worried if I start filling in the blanks uh, with stuff that might not have been in the dream, but where I think, well, this makes logical sense that it yeah. would have been there. And so you know, at least you're able to write it down and, and get it all down there so that you can kind of um, you know remember what happens, and and hopefully, yeah. hopefully you'll be able to kick in with some lucid dreams and then be able to have some you know really good ones with whatever it is that you want to do. What what would you want to do in a dream if you if you could dream lucidly? Uh, well, I. I, I can if I work at it. Um, I'm, I'm out of practice, but it is something you have to practice. You have to set your mind to really do it. Mm-hmm. Um, and it it became really easy for a while. But um, it, it's just like wish fulfillment. But then after a while, it kind of you know gets it gets bored, right? Really boring. Um, so I mean, now it's just let's see what happens. You know, I just go into it saying you know whatever. I'm you know I'm not going to work at it. See what happens, and and you can't. Um, I'd like it, to have it, a mix. It, it, go ahead. I'd like to have a mix, like to be able yeah. to just kind of let the dream do its natural flow, 
but then to yeah. be able and, to to say at yeah, some point then, like I'm going to do this, can, right? You can you can you can modify things. You can change if things aren't going quite, you know, however, you, you you can go through and and change things. And lately, I've been trying. I've been doing that, and every now and then, um, I'll wake up, but it, it's not like I'm waking up in the middle of the night. I'm waking up, and it's you know five ten minutes before my alarm clock goes off. <laughs> Which is the worst, because <laughs> you're like, oh, man. Yeah, exactly. I have 10 more minutes. Yeah. Well, thank you very much for the call and, and for sharing uh, those experiences with us. Yeah, no problem. Take it easy. You, will, you as well. Take care. And uh, 508-996-0500, if anybody wants to call in, uh, I will say that uh, one of the, the, the my favorite dreams uh, that I used to have all the time was I would have a dream where, and, and it happened to me a couple of times, where I had just finished, uh, not always winning, sometimes winning, but competing in like some sort of like pie eating contest or hot dog eating contest, and those were always the best dreams to have because when you wake up, you didn't even need to have breakfast. You like wake up still feeling full. But I remember I had a dream one time where I went to because I'd never been to Coney Island um, in my whole life, but I had a dream that I was at Coney Island competing in the hot dog eating contest and the weird thing is years and years later i actually finally went to coney island for the first time and i was like huh this is kind of like what i thought that it looked like this is kind of like what was in my dream now of course when they do the contest they have staging up and all that different kind of stuff but when i walked into nathan's hot dogs at coney island i was like this feels familiar which i thought was kind of cool but uh, i only had two hot dogs that day because it was six o'clock on a sunday morning good evening you're next on spooky south coast Yes, sir. I, uh, my mother uh, used to live in a house here in South Dartmouth, and I'd, I'd be downstairs, and I'd hear this, like, boom, 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 upstairs. And I said, Mom, you hear that? She says, yeah, that's my friend. She keeps me company. Oh. And uh, uh, so my girlfriend at the time saw her, because there was this one particular, one particular door upstairs that was, like, all screened in and everything else. And it didn't look right, you know. Well, apparently this girl was uh, locked behind this door for some reason. And uh, he's, yeah, so my my girlfriend at the time saw her. She was a ghost. She was uh, 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 about 13 years old with long, straggly hair and a white gown and all and stuff like that. But but apparently she was kept behind this door for some reason. Hmm. And uh, I have to ask you, sir, have you have you called in and shared this dream with us before? I think I have a while ago. Okay, because I was going to say, it sounds familiar. I was going to say, how weird would it be if, if two different people called in having the same experience in the same house? No, I think I think it was a while ago. Okay. All right. Just wanted to make sure so that I wasn't, you know, thinking two different people had the same experience. So- yeah, but uh, my, 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 my girlfriend saw her, and she, 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 she explained to me what she looked like and everything else. And, uh, yeah. yeah. And were you able to find out anything about it? Was there anything, I mean, obviously it's not the kind of thing, you know, somebody's going to write down in, in any kind of record, but 
Uh, did you hear about there being anybody that had ever been kind of kept no, there? I never, no, I never found out anything about it, sir. Because you know how it goes. I mean, especially like in, uh, uh, I'm assuming the house was, was pretty old? Yeah. Uh, you know that in the older times, you know, if they had somebody who was what they would call feeble-minded, you know, they would kind of keep them locked away. Uh, and, and maybe that was something that happened. Well, but there, there, was this, there, there was this one particular door. That was like screened in, and uh, it, 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 it looked like uh, you know some 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 something that somebody would lock somebody away in. I don't I don't I can't explain it to you that way. You know, uh, it just uh, it wasn't right. That's it's yeah, it's I terrible. Know. And I bet yeah. you know I bet that if at the time if you you know if you knew about some of the different ghost hunting techniques and you'd put a tape recorder out there, I bet you whoever it was that was in that room. You know, would have would have spoken to you, and and would have probably had something to say about the way that they were being treated. Well, like I said, uh, my wife, my wife, my girlfriend at the time, she saw the girl, and uh, she she described her, and you know, she was like about thirteen years old, with long straggly hair and a long white gown on and stuff, and so that's all I know. Well, thank you very much for for sharing with us. Okay, thank you, sir. Have a great night. Bye-bye. And if anybody else would like to call in, 508-996-0500-877-996-1420. Those are the numbers to call in and share whatever's on your mind. And I I mentioned before, by the way, uh, some of my uh, upcoming paranormal lectures, and I want to make sure that I give you the exact dates because... Otherwise, I'm terrible about reminding to tell people when they can come out and see me. And I love to see everybody. I love to have you come out and talk with me. Uh, the The crowd in Tewksbury the other night was amazing. We packed the place. There was even a state representative that came out. And uh, that's always cool when you have a, a politician in the crowd. Because uh, then you can say, hey, how about you get us some earmarked funds for some paranormal research? Uh, but here's what's coming up uh, on the remainder of the schedule. Tuesday, October 22nd, I'll be talking about Ghosts of Cape Cod and the South Coast at the Falmouth Library at 7 p.m. Then the next night, Wednesday, October 23rd, Ghosts of the South Coast in, at the Hyannis Public Library. That'll be at 5.30 p.m. On Sunday, October 27th, it's I'll be presenting Paranormal 101 at the Plymouth Public Library at 2 p.m. And then right after that, Darcy, Darcy Lee will be talking about the ghosts of Plymouth. So you'll get uh, kind of a two-for-one that day if you come out and, uh, and visit us at the Plymouth Library. Then on Saturday, November 2nd, I'll be talking about haunted objects at the Oaklawn Library in Cranston, Rhode Island at 2.30 p.m. And the following Saturday, November 9th, I'll be talking about presidential paranormal at the Central Library in Cranston, Rhode Island at 2.30 p.m. And then I've already got some dates booked for 2020. Uh, One that is definitely in the books is Wednesday, February 5th, 2020. I'll be talking about presidential paranormal at the Akushnet Public Library. So uh, that's, I've, I, you know, I, I have a lot of different lectures that I give, and I usually give the choice to libraries and, and civic organizations when I go out and speak, you know, what is it that you would like me to talk about? And most people will request Ghosts of the South Coast, and some people will request Paranormal 101. Uh, this year, Haunted Object seems to be a big popular topic, but Presidential Paranormal, which is something that I put together last uh, winter, because I said, there's got to be something we can talk about to keep the the paranormal conversation going all year. There's got to be something I can present that would be better off in the winter months than in in October. 
And so I had always had an interest in some of these paranormal, uh, the ghost stories and other paranormal stories related to the White House and to Washington, D.C. and to the presidents. And so I put something together on that after a couple months of research and it's taken off. I mean, people like it. People enjoy it. They enjoy hearing about the weird secret space programs and presidential UFO sightings and some of the hauntings of the White House. Uh, But whenever I try to book it at a library, I always get asked the same question from most of the libraries, not all of them, but most of them will say, well, you're not going to talk about the current occupants of the White House, are you? And I always have to say the same thing every time. Of course, of course I am. I have to talk about the current occupants of the White House because these ghosts are still there. They haven't gone anywhere. But it's a very apolitical discussion. As I said today, uh, when I was talking about it to the the Saturday club at the Wamsutta Club, I said the most political it gets is that I mentioned John Podesta, at which point I'll get some booze in the room usually. Uh, but I only mention him because he was such a, a, a driving force in trying to get UFO disclosure out there. So that's what we talk about. You know, we don't we don't talk about Hillary's emails and John Podesta's emails, except when we mention the fact that John Podesta sent a number of emails about UFO disclosure. So uh, come on out and see that. Hopefully, uh, if you have some time, uh, all those different presentations that I do, I try to I try to put in fresh new jokes. But usually, I just end up relying on the same old jokes anyway. So, you know, if you come before, feel free to shout out the punchlines. Five zero eight nine nine six zero five hundred. We'll do a few more minutes of the program, uh, and then I will let you get on with your day, uh, with your Sunday, and try and go to sleep after all the the discussion that we've had about nightmares and we had when we had lex on earlier we were talking about the book nightmare land i had mentioned that i was about a quarter of the way through it but what's really interesting about this book is it doesn't dismiss the paranormal reason the paranormal rationale to some of these stories when lex is putting this book together he will talk about some of those mythological reasons why people have these sleep issues and he doesn't say you know, that's something that we might have talked about in the 15th century, but now modern science tells us that it's actually this. He doesn't say that one way or the other is actually correct. He just says that there's differing schools of thought about it. So that's what I found very interesting about the book is that, you know, Lex knew that there would be people that would say, but we know that that's this. And he kind of nipped that in the bud by saying, well, we can't say for sure that it's that. It just might be more common uh, or it might be more uh, explainable if we look at it from that perspective. And some of the other things that are in the book that we didn't really get a chance to talk about, he mentioned it briefly, uh, but being uh, vulnerable to psychic attacks while you're sleeping, the fact that while you're asleep, uh, that is when you can be more susceptible because your guard is down to psychic attacks, whether it be from you know outside entities or whether it be from other people that are trying to attack you, uh, that that's a, a relatively good time to do it. I've had people who have told me and it weirds me out when they say it but i've had people who have told me that they would insert something into my dreams that night and i don't know if they actually can do that and actually did do that or if they just said it and that put the power of suggestion into my mind so then something popped into my head that was like oh that must have been what they're talking about because you know stupid me won't go and actually ask them, well, what was it that you were going to put into my brain? Because I don't want to think that they actually did that. 
I don't think I'm blowing up anybody's spot when I say this, but uh, the Starborn twins like to pull that on me. They like to say, oh, we're going we're gonna to send you a visitor in your sleep. No, don't do that. They think it's funny to, to do that to me. So, uh, you know, I've had a few weird instances where things have been placed into my dreams. Uh, I've had people that have told me before that they're going to open my third eye, whether I want it to be or not. So it's, uh, it's kind of a freaky thing, but supposedly it can be done. People can insert things into your dream, you know, a la uh, Inception. I, I hate to think that that's possible. I don't even like the fact that I talk in my sleep. Uh, if I'm not wearing my CPAP mask, I'll talk in my sleep, and I apparently will say things that don't really make any sense. But wouldn't you be worried if you talked in your sleep? Wouldn't you be worried that you might say something that you didn't want anybody else to know, that you might reveal all your secrets? And then some of the other things that uh, he talks about in the book as well is uh, you can find out about the case of the devil's dummy. You can find out about exploding head syndrome. You can find out about the uh, the case, the, the legend of the black dog. You can learn about more about aliens. We touched upon that very briefly in some of the discussion. But he, he gets really in-depth in how do aliens relate to the subject of sleep and dreams. He talks about the hyperdimensional explanation of alien abduction just a little bit more in-depth than he did tonight. And uh, he'll also talk about the God Helmet. And one of the things that uh, you know we didn't really have time to get into is when you can crack the code of your dreams, when you can figure out how to dream lucidly and do whatever it is that you want in your dreams, then what do you do? You know, John called in a few moments ago and he said, you know, you dream lucidly, eventually it gets boring. But there's got to be a bigger reason for being able to do it than just to say, I'm going to fly in my dream or, you know, depending on how nefarious you are with it, you know, I want to have sex with a certain person or I want to be able to commit this crime and not get caught. You know, all these things that people will do in a dream when they can control what it is that they're doing. Yeah, eventually you run out of ideas and, and, and it kind of gets repetitive. But that can't be the only reason that that ability exists within us to be able to dream lucidly. There must be something bigger about it. There must be something that is... Uh, a, a grander plan for it, we'll say, for us to be able to have that ability. So if you can crack that code, where, where can we go with it? And so you can read about that in the book as well. Uh, you can get it pretty much where any anywhere books are sold. Uh, again, it's called Nightmare Land, Travels at the Borders of Sleep, Dreams, and Wakefulness. And it's by Lex Lonehood Nova. And, and I'm showing on Spooky TV a cover of the book. And uh, it's a very, you know, it's a very vivid cover. It kind of freaked me out. It's one of those books that when uh, when I put it down on the table at night, I put it face down. And I've only had to do that with a few books. Uh, so just know... Lex, that your book is in the company of uh, Communion by Whitley Strieber and the fact that I put it down. Not that it's a scary image, but it's just enough to make me think about things that I don't want to think about as I'm getting ready to go to bed. Uh, but the book uh, has a couple blurbs on the back from uh, George Knapp uh, uh, talking about it as a potent mix of modern media reports and bone-chilling lore worthy of John Keel and the Brothers Grimm. And I had mentioned Rosemary. She, she, uh, she says it's an excellent exploration of the darker side of the dreamscape 
a must-have book. And that's coming from the person who wrote the Encyclopedia of Nightmares. So, uh, and dreams and dreaming and all that kind of stuff that uh, you can still pick up to this day and utilize to help analyze your own dreams. I don't really like to try to dig into them too much. Most of the time I can just accept that it's stuff that wasn't supposed to happen. But then sometimes I know that there's a reason and I'm supposed to find out a little bit more. Sometimes uh, there's a, a, a bigger picture scenario for what it is that I'm dreaming. And when that happens, you need to be willing to take some of that on. I found it interesting when John was talking about his friend from Scouts that was able to kind of script his dreams. And I've, I've tried that myself. I've tried to say, when I go to sleep tonight, I want to dream about this. And it may be that I'm trying to figure something out and solve a problem. And I want to dream about, you know, what am I supposed to do in this situation? Or I want to dream about what will happen if I choose this path and hope that my dream will help bring me some answers. But sometimes I also think about something where, you know, um, maybe I'm watching a documentary about, uh, oh, I don't know, the 1920s. And I want to say to myself when I go to sleep, uh, I hope that my dream is of, I want to dream about what it would be like to be at a speakeasy in the 1920s and having a grand old time and and, uh, and, you know, and I don't want the police to come and raid the place, but I want to be able to, to dance the Charleston and, and, and drink bathtub gin and all that stuff and, and see what it was like. But nothing. And no, more often than not, if I try to go to sleep plotting my dreams and planning my dreams and hoping to dream about something else, I find that that's when I'll have some of my, you know, most disturbing dreams that have nothing to do with what I was looking for and actually kind of freak me out. But I've noticed that... Uh, as I get older, you know, I have less and less nightmares. And I think that that's part of the natural process. But then what also happens is I internalize dreams a little bit more. So I will wake up from a dream that is not a nightmare by the typical definition of the word or of our concept of what a nightmare is. But yet that dream will shake me so much that I can't go back to sleep. I will actually wake up physically shaking from some of the dreams that I have. And when I think back about it, I'm like, well, that's a silly thing to have that reaction to. Excuse me. That's a silly thing to have that reaction to because it was just a dream about this. But for some reason, it it, it shakes me to my core. I think the best feeling in the world, if you have a nightmare is when you wake up from that nightmare and no matter how terrified you may be, no matter how shocked you may be, uh, no matter what you may be feeling, you wake up from the nightmare and the sun is out. And you're like, ah, nothing to be afraid of anymore. And then maybe you fall back asleep for another hour or two. But that's the best feeling is when you can wake up and be like, okay, everything's fine. Well, and everything will be fine next week uh, when we will not be here on the radio, but we will be in North Andover for our Spooky in Salem event. So if you want to come and take part in that, I mean, I think we're going to run into an issue where uh, if somebody, a certain somebody gets a, a certain check, you know, 
there'll be some spots taken up. But other than that, there's plenty of room for you if you want to get involved in the event. Just go to SpookySouthCoast.com. It's a great place to go and check out if you can't make it to the event, if you can't make it because of the schedule, if you can't make it because $75 is a bit much for you to spend on a ghost hunt ticket. No matter what the reason, if you can't make it there next Saturday night, make it a point to go and visit the Parson Barnard House and take one of their tours. Greg the, ter- uh, Greg the caretaker lives there in an apartment right in the back end of the house. Uh, they run tours at various different times. And I'm sure if you reach out to them and, and, and email them and set it up in advance, they'd be happy to give you a tour whenever you can make it up there. Go to this house. Experience what it's like to be in the same house as somebody who is involved in the Salem Witch Trials. And when you open up the the closet door on the first floor of the house, and they have the layers of wallpaper all there marked with what years they think that, what era they think that it was that that wallpaper was on display. And you can go all the way back to what it looked like when Reverend Thomas Barnard lived there himself. In the years following the Salem Witch Trials. That's pretty damn cool. So if you can't make it for the event next Saturday, try and make it out there just for a tour so you can check it out for yourself. It's uh, it's a beautiful house. It's right down the street from the cemetery where Reverend Barnard is buried. And as I said, it's right outside of Salem. So you can make a whole October day out of it next Saturday. You can go to Salem and go and visit the witch shop and... Go and visit the Harry Potter Museum, the Harry Potter shop, and all the different stuff that they have going on there, all the different events, and then grab a bite to eat. Well, actually, you don't even have to eat because we're going to feed you pizza. And then come on over to the Thomas Barnard house. We are going to be meeting in the barn, which is right behind the house, right next to the little parking lot there. We'll meet in the barn for pizza, for a little bit of a, a talk beforehand before we investigate. Greg will give everybody the history of the house, and I will go over some investigation basics. And then we'll spend hours investigating the cemetery and the house. So, And that's it for October events. I have those library lectures and then uh, this investigation. And then before you know it, the month's going to be over. And uh, we'll be into November and start worrying about the actual holidays instead of paranormal Christmas. So if you want to get out and have some spooky fun, time is running short to be able to do that. But we do have something cool coming up in December when uh, I'll be taking part in a horror convention we'll ha- down in Connecticut. We'll have some more information about that as uh, as we get closer to it. So that'll do it for tonight's show. Until next time, which will be two weeks from tonight, when I think we're going to try and pull off the Bridgewater Triangle investigation show. But I have to see if I can set some things in motion to make that happen. So until then, for Matt, for Matt, for Stephanie, I'm Tim. We want you all out there to stay spooktacular. Are you intrigued by Paranormal Talk Radio? You'll love the new Paranormal Radio app from TalkStream Live. You'll find a great selection of talk shows covering UFOs, ghosts, strange phenomena, and much more. Download the Paranormal Radio app now and start listening to the very best in Paranormal Talk entertainment. The Paranormal Radio app, free in Google Play and the iOS App Store.